Uh, Solomon built the temple, as you know, which stood there, but it was destroyed, the first temple, in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. The second was rebuilt and completed in 516 B.C. It was this one that Herod, in 19 B.C., expanded greatly. And so to accommodate this much larger Herodian temple, it required a base, a platform, the Temple Mount, to be enlarged. And as I say, the retaining wall was required in order to hold the earth together. And so that's what the Western Wall is today. It was a wall to support what was above. And that's all that remains of the temple today. It was destroyed, as I mentioned, in A.D. 70. And so the Jewish people from all over the world go to this place to weep. It is, even down to this very day, truly the wailing place of the Jews. Specifically, it consists of an exposed part of wall about 187 feet long. However... The above ground part of the wall goes far beyond a mere 187 feet. Actually, it extends about 1,600 feet, but you can only see clearly 187 feet of it because the rest is largely blocked by residences, homes which are occupied along the wall down to this very day. I mentioned to you that there is an above-ground and below-ground part of the wall, and I'll tell you more about that in just a second. On the above-ground part of the wall, out from it, is, has been built a very large courtyard or plaza, uh, which accommodates very special functions. Members of the Israeli military sometimes take the oath there, but what you also see there often, if you're fortunate enough to be there on the right day, uh, are many bar mitzvahs. Whenever we go there, we plan on being at the wall on bar mitzvah day. It takes place two times, I think a Monday, a Thursday. Anyway, you could get there. And there's kind of a, a partition, women on one side, men on the other. That's the way it should be. And... Uh, and uh, so, wow. And so, uh, thanks for your attention. And uh, so you have little Jewish kids who are becoming ceremonially at the age of 13, responsible themselves to God, bar mitzvah, son of the law. They're accountable to the law. And they come from Yemen, and they come from the United States, they come from Russia, and they come from England, from all over, and there there's a processional, and they'll carry the Torah scrolls, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, the Pentateuch, and, uh, and they will celebrate, and you are invited to join in. Anybody can join in. This is the above-ground part of the wall. It is uh, from present ground level up about 62 feet but there's a lot more underground, about 40 more feet 
underground. You see, over the years, uh, age to age, rubble has accumulated. So the present street level is over 40 feet higher than the one that existed uh, in the time of Herod. You could go down to that very Herodian street level. There's a tunnel built there, and it takes you right down so that when you're in that tunnel, you are walking on pavement uh, that the Lord Jesus walked on during his time here on earth. It goes back 2,000 years. There are about uh, 45 courses of Herodian stones that make up the western wall. 28 of those levels or courses are above ground and 17 below ground. And it's quite fascinating. Each course is set back from the one beneath it just a little bit so that they lean in and that's how they hold in all of the earth and do not topple. It was quite an engineering feat. In fact, modern engineers and architects still ponder over uh, this massive project. How could it be that stones, you're seeing some of them so massive, could have been cut and moved and so precisely put in a place. It's quite a fascinating project. The stones are massive. On average, they weigh two to eight tons, but several are much, much heavier. One, for instance, weighs 570 tons. You understand? No modern machinery. So we still wonder, marvel over this magnificent engineering project. Just to give you an idea, the largest stone in the uh, Great Pyramids of Egypt weighs only a mere 11 tons. So you, you can see uh, what a massive project this was. The stones are limestone from the area. In fact, archaeologists have unearthed uh, the very places, quarries, where Herod had these stones excavated from. You can visit them even today. Now, I mentioned that the temple which Herod uh, built was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. And when they did that, they did something else which has haunted us to modern times uh, they prohibited Jews from being there. They pushed us out so we could not be in Yerushalayim. We couldn't worship there in Jerusalem for centuries and centuries. We were barred from access to this area, including the Western Wall, until June of 1967. Israel was attacked by her so-called neighbors, friendly they weren't and still aren't, and only by God's grace, Israel was able to repel uh, the force which greatly outnumbered them. It's known as the Six-Day War. And in six days, Israeli paratroopers uh, gained control of the old city of Jerusalem and had access to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, for the first time, in th except for intermittent times of access to the wall, almost in thousands of years. They wept, these military men, at the Wailing Wall. 
the place where the Jews weep. It was quite a magnificent thing because this wall is very, very important to us. In fact, it's considered to be the holiest remaining site in all of Judaism. But why? Why is such respect and devotion given to this wall? It's for this reason. It is thought that the position of the Western Wall made it closest to the Holy of Holies, which once stood as part of the temple, as you know, above it on the Temple Mount. Not everyone could go into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest, Aaron. It's a very, very significant place. And so it is thought that this particular wall gets us closest, without uh, violating any law, gets us closest to the Holy of Holies, which then existed. And so this wall is so revered and so respected. People pray there all the time. If you go there, you could pray. You do not have to be uh, Jewish. You could go to the wall freely, and you could pray there, just as long as you abide by uh, the Orthodox rules, which have women worshiping on one side and men worshiping uh, on the other. That's just the way it is. Uh, Jewish tradition says, in fact, that God's very presence rests upon the Western Wall. An esteemed rabbi made the statement that it is here, uh, it is as if he has prayed, it, when one prays here, it is as if he has prayed before the throne of glory, because the gate of heaven is situated there, and it is open to hear prayer. Jewish tradition maintains that uh, the belief that the wall is the shortest and most direct route to God's ear. And so you know perhaps even of the practice of writing out prayers on slips of paper and inserting it into crevices in the wall. You could do this down to this very day. In fact, famous people do it quite frequently uh, in 2000, for instance, Pope John Paul II participated in this custom. In 2009, uh, Pope Benedict XVI also uh, inscribed a prayer on a slip of paper and put it in the Western Wall. And then in 2008, then presidential candidate Barack Obama also visited here the Western Wall and put a prayer in the wall. The Israeli telephone company uh, has come up with a plan such that even those of us who are not as famous as some I've mentioned could participate in this practice. You could fax, um, uh, thanks to the graces of the Israeli telephone company, you could fax your written prayer to them, and they will see to it that it is placed in the wall. There actually are many services, very enterprising services, that uh, will extend the privileged opportunity for those of us who can't get to the wall to have written out prayers placed there, and then they periodically are removed to make room for new ones. It's a special place. 
There are three specific times during the day when Jewish people go to the wall to pray. You can go at any time, but there are three specific times because we have three uh, preordained times during which we pray. Morning and afternoon, we call it mincha, and then in the evening uh, we pray as well at the wall. And Jewish people, particularly Orthodox ones who go to pray at the wall, will be wearing a uh, head covering. The men, uh, in some countries they're called a, a yarmulke, in Israel a kippah, which means dome. It's dome-shaped, you've seen them, and it's to be a reminder that God is above. Also, while they're at the wall, uh, oftentimes they will wear uh, tefillin or phylacteries, uh, leather bands wrapped around arms containing boxes, uh, one attached to the forehead, one here near the heart, containing scripture. Uh, tefillin comes from the word tefillah, which means to pray, means prayer. Uh, they will also, as you see, wear uh, something called a talit, which is a prayer shawl. It means little tent. And they make themselves kind of a little tent uh, of worship at the wall to Almighty God. And then sometimes you'll see men um, praying. They'll have a prayer book in hand, and they'll be making this kind of movement. It's, it's, it's not a nervous reaction. It's a, we call it shuckling, shuckling. And there are various, did I get it right, Israel? No. Okay, you don't have to yell. <laughs> this is my friend Israel from Israel, and I wish you would pray for him. He has cancer. And uh, we would love for him to be healed. And we would love for him to know his own Messiah, even more importantly. So we thank God for him and his life and that he is here. And I, and I thank God that he feels the freedom to yell out and correct me in front of all of these people. It's a Jewish thing. <laughs> uh, so there's different theories about where the shuckling uh, custom came. Um, one is that in old days, prayer books were rare and expensive. Not everyone had them. So someone would have the prayer book in hand, but the others wanted access to it, so they would gather around behind the one who owned the prayer book and try to peek. You know, one would peek this way, one would peek this way, and that's how we got the custom. Others say, no. <laughs> uh, it's simply a sign of respect. When you come before God, you should tremble before God. So that's what they do over there at, uh, at the wall. Sometimes people will be dressed in unusual, for us, garments. And it comes from Eastern Europe centuries ago. Uh, uh, hats and um, long uh, coats, black coats. Uh, sometimes the men who go to the wall will be wearing footwear looking like slippers on purpose because they're symbolizing when you go to the wall to meet with God, you should be in no rush. You should be relaxed. And oftentimes people, when leaving the wall, will go backwards like this. They will not turn their back on it until they get several paces away so as to show respect for the wall. So all of these things take place there. Much sincerity, you cannot argue. Much passion, 
It's indisputable. Tremendous zeal. Unquestionable zeal. But at the risk of uh, being a tad bit offensive, I speak as a Jewish person and tell you it is misdirected zeal at best. An ancient Jew with much greater authority than me, a rabbi, Shaul, or Paul, made this statement. He said, and it's found in Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 4, he said, brethren, here he is speaking to all those uh, he felt to be kindred spirits, people who, like him, were following the Messiah. Uh, Jewish people and Gentile people had become for him like a family, brethren, he says. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. So he's speaking to a group called the brethren about a group called the them. Uh, the them are his uh, kinsmen according to the flesh. Not his spiritual family, uh, but his genealogical family, fellow Jews. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have, see, a zeal for God. For sure. But not in accordance with knowledge. You see? His words are authoritative. Mine might be an opinion. His are authoritative. A zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness. Do you mean to tell me these religious people don't know about God's righteousness? That's exactly what I mean to say. They don't know the means by which you could be rightly related to God. That's what righteousness means. How do you come to have right standing with God? My people think it's by donning a uh, uh, yarmulke, uh, wearing tefillin, shuckling, uh, uh, eating kosher food, and praying to a wall. My people don't know the path to right standing with God. See, and seeking to establish their own. So instead of coming to God God's way, prideful man, not just my people, let's not point the finger, people in general would rather, out of human pride, think they could access Almighty God in their own righteousness. There's a whole nature of religious behavior, you see. And so seeking to establish their own righteousness, they didn't subject themselves to the righteousness of God for Christ. Translation, Messiah. What does it mean? Anointed one. For the anointed one is the end or goal of the law. The rabbis give us laws of behavior at the wall. How to stand, how to shake, how to walk, how to wash your hands, what to wear on your head, all kinds of, everything there is under rabbinical authority. But Messiah Jesus is the goal of the law for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. God's law, forget about man's, is perfect. Nothing wrong with it, but it shows us there's plenty wrong with us, doesn't it? We don't keep it. We disobey it. And so the law proves to us our inability to attain to the requisite level of righteousness through the doing of the law. And so the law leads us to the Messiah, Jesus, who fulfilled it for us, don't you see? When Paul prayed this, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, he was not praying at the wall. You know why? That rabbi discovered you don't have to go to the wall to access Almighty God. You can invite him to come into your life. You could pray to him wherever you are. That rabbi came to a point in his spiritual journey when he realized you could have a personal connection to otherwise unapproachably holy almighty God through Messiah Jesus. Paul knew that through faith in Messiah Jesus, he had become a temple of the Spirit of God. He had no need anymore to go to the temple. He was a temple, a housing, a dwelling, the abode of the very Spirit of God. Therefore, he could have access to this God at any time and in any place. He could talk to God. Paul spoke to God in jail. He didn't know he'd ever get out to go to the wall. So, folks, I would like to impress upon you tonight this singular life lesson from the Western Wall. It is this. When you talk to the Lord Jesus, you're not talking to a wall. You're talking to a living God. You could have his ear wherever you are. At any time. I had no personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. I was this religious fella. I had a yarmulke. I had uh, my own tefillin. I had a talit. And I had a wall. <laughs> but I didn't have a personal relationship with God. I didn't know you could talk to him just on normal terms. But I do now. I talk to him so much today. I talked to him before I came here. I talked to him about coming here. I talked to him about you. <laughs> I did. I asked him to give you ears that would hear. I talked to him about me. I got a bigger problem. That I would, he would help me to communicate only that which is true. And then I was tired today. And I spoke to him about how I feel a little weak. Would you give me strength? You know, I spoke to him in the car. I was talking to God on Pearland Parkway. One time I talked to God on Gulf Freeway. Imagine that. <laughs> Let me really stretch your faith. I one time spoke to God in Alvin, Texas. <laughs> in Clute, Texas. In Dallas, Texas. Do you want to hear something? You don't even have to live in Texas and you can still talk to God. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. 
I don't want to be hard on my people or criticize them. They just look like every other religious group in the world. People who do not know about God's means of right standing and seeking to establish their own fail to submit to the righteousness of God. He says all of our deeds are, are like filthy rags. In Yiddish, a shmata. It's like filthy rags. So Jesus came to remove any wall and obstacle and obstruction so we could access Almighty God respectfully. He's not my pal. He's not the big guy upstairs. And he's not the co-pilot. He's Elohim. He's God Almighty. He's unapproachably holy. But he came near. He's Emmanuel. Everything about him is enfleshed in his son. And if I have the son, I have everything about God. I have the connection I, I need. And I need a mediator, not a wall. I need a mediator because God and I are at war. I would lose. But I'm his adversary. I was his adversary, not his kid. And I need someone to mediate a peace accord between a holy God and a guy like me who has violated and offended his holiness. So have you. And so this same Rabbi Shaul made this magnificent statement one time. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. He said, for there is one God. Just about everyone buys that. How about this? And there is one mediator. Ah, now that one causes people to stumble. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. People buy into this one God and you can get to him any way you want to. People get to God in different ways. You take the high road, I take the low road. I may call him Jesus, you call him Allah. Someone else calls him who knows what, Reverend Moon or something. But that's not what Paul said. He said there is not only one God, there's also only one mediator. And because there's only one mediator, you've got to be correct about who he is. Paul tells us he's the man, Christ Jesus. What a statement. He is the man. That's a reference to his humanity. Christ Jesus, the anointed one, that's a, repre uh, a reference to his divinity. That's why he can be the only mediator between God and man. Because only he, on the divine side, is rightly related to Almighty God. And on the human side, came to be the perfect man. You wouldn't travel over just any bridge, would you? You want to make sure that the bridge is firmly anchored to both sides of the river. That's what makes a bridge trustworthy. Something you could take a stand on. Don't you see Jesus was anchored on both sides, on the divine side. He's the son of God. On the human side, he's the son of man. No wonder there's only one mediator between God and man. Why is there a need for a mediator, someone might ask? <laughs> because God and man are at war, apart, separated, disconnected. Our sin has done it. We've sinned against a holy God. Now there's a need for mediation. A mediator is someone who stands in the gap. Someone gets between two opposing parties. Someone who stands in the middle. In this case, our mediator stands before an offended God and those of us who have offended him.
A mediator is one who intervenes between two parties in order to bring them together, in order to restore peace, communion, fellowship. I have to tell you, we need outside help. And the very God whom we have offended has provided that help. That's called grace, amazing grace. The very God whom we have offended has provided the mediator to deal with it. His own son. Would you do that? No, you wouldn't. He did. He's not only the biggest, he's the bestest. There's nobody who can love you like he loves you. He gave his only begotten son in response to you and I offending him. What a shame to reject this. How foolish to reject this. Those who believe there are multiple ways to God, many mediators, you know what I mean? (laughs) They're still left with the necessity, don't you think, of choosing one? Let's say there's a a thousand different ways to God. You still got to choose one, don't you? Who do you choose? That's my question. And on what basis? One of my relatives recently said to me, Stuart, this Jesus of yours is like a crutch to you. I told him, never were truer words spoken. And who or what are you leaning on as your crutch? Don't you tell me. We don't, every one of us is limping. Who's your crutch? I chose the one mediator rooted on the divine side to God and on the human side to man because he became enfleshed. Who have you chosen as your way to God? And on what basis did you make? I chose Jesus on the basis of what he did. He rose up from death. And on the basis of what he did, I can believe in what he said. He said, I am the way. I'm not a way amongst other ways. I am the way. How do I know that, Lord Jesus? I shall show you. I'll win victory over my own death. Have you pulled that off recently? Has any pretender to the throne pulled it off? There's only one empty tomb. Is the one he occupied. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the most historically verifiable fact known to humankind. It will stand up in any court of law. That's not a religious statement. That's an objective, historical, factual statement. There's evidence for the resurrection. And what Jesus did proves that what Jesus said can be counted on. And Jesus said, I am the only way. Nobody can come to the Father by going to the wall. Only by me. Jesus said, come to me. He's powerful, but he doesn't force us, so he invites. He said, come to me. Who? Everybody who's worn out. Everybody who's weary and heavy laden. With what? Anything. Life. Physical problems. Financial problems. Moral problems. 
come to me. All. Jews? All. Gentiles? All. Who are weary and heavy. What if I feel like I got it together and I don't have any needs? Well, I guess you're not coming. But if you're weary and heavy laden, then you realize how needy you are. And when you come to me, I'll give you a real Shabbat rest. I'll give you rest. When you go to the wall today in Jerusalem, you weep. But when you go to the cross on which Jesus died, you rejoice now and forevermore. Which is it for you? Make it the cross. Lord Jesus, that is our uh, prayer for any who might be here tonight who are faced with a decision of eternal consequence. Where will they spend it? With whom? The assurance that it will be spent with you is a function of establishing that communion with you now, before death. It's too late then. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming so that we could come to you. Thank you for being the mediator we need, the peacemaker we need, the debt payer we need. Thank you for not erecting a wall, but for tearing it down so that ones such in us as us can cry out, Abba, Father. Personal relationship with a personal Savior through a personal expression of confident faith in Him. Thank you for enabling it in the lives of most here. Please continue to do so. This is your desire for you came to save, not to set up a wall. And oh God, our hearts go out to those who, though zealous, are subject to misdirected zeal, the zeal of religious pride. Oh God, would you free them, my people and other religious groups, from it with a mighty outpouring of your Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, so that people will look upon you whom we have pierced, confess sin, change direction, and be now and forevermore saved. This we pray in the name of Jesus, the one and only Savior. Amen.